Hey listeners, welcome to episode 20 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week on the list is the state of Maryland, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, Maryland has 183 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Maryland true crime. You like that, you sick son of a bitch? I don't usually give trigger warnings, but I do like to give them when they involve children and violent crimes against children. So trigger warning for this first case. And this story is about a little boy by the name of George Stanley Burdinsky Jr. And his family said that he went by Jr. So since him and his father shared the same first name, George, I'm going to refer to him as Junior throughout this episode so it doesn't get too confusing. Junior Burdinsky was born on July 29, 1982, to parents George and Barbara Burdinsky. He grew up in Brentwood, Maryland, and from what I could find in my research, he has one older brother named Fred and two younger siblings, a younger brother named Gary and a younger sister named Virginia. At the time he disappeared, he was attending Thomas Stone Elementary School, and he was only 10 years old. On Monday, May 24, 1993, Junior came home from school and asked Barbara for permission to go help mow an adult neighbor's yard. The name of this adult neighbor is Robert Violet. At this time, the family was living in the 4300 block of 40th Place, and Robert lived just a few streets over in the 4500 block of 37th Street. She agreed to let him go, and Junior hopped on his red and white 1950 series Schwinn bicycle and rode away around 3.30 p.m. Barbara didn't know this was the last time she would ever see her son. Robert claimed that Junior never showed up to his house, but there were witnesses that stated they had seen Junior in front of Robert's mother's house around 4 p.m. The last reported neighborhood sighting of Junior was at around 8.30 p.m. when witnesses stated they had seen him riding through the neighborhood on his bike. This was the last sighting ever reported of Junior the day he disappeared. His father, George, started to get worried when 7.30 p.m. rolled around and Junior still had not come home. He stated he called the police first, and then him and his teenage son, Fred, drove around looking for Junior until 6 a.m. the next morning, extending their search all the way to Riverdale, Mount Rainier, and Cottage City. After finding no sign of Junior, he dropped Fred off at home and then spoke to Robert Violet. After Robert told George that Junior had never shown up to his house, George and Robert went out together and searched for Junior some more. This was when they found the rim from his bike near a tennis court that was located three blocks away from the family home. There was no sign of Junior at this location, and to this day, his bike has never been found. Within hours of Junior's disappearance, A large team of local, state, and federal officers organized one of the largest searches in its history 
looking for any clues and also interviewing neighbors in the area. It was reported that hundreds of police officers and FBI agents had performed so many interviews that they fill bound volumes of files. This neighborhood was located off of Maryland Route 1 near the Washington, D.C. line, and even though this community was tight-knit, authorities recalled learning that many of the families were struggling with financial or addiction problems. I'm not exactly sure why this is mentioned when this case is discussed, but I wanted to at least bring it up. As investigators spoke with parents and children that lived in this community, there was one name that kept coming up, James A. Kowalski. James was 53 years old and had lived in the Hyattsville area for about 10 years, but had recently relocated to Winchester, Virginia just six weeks earlier. I GPS searched the distance, and these two towns are located just under two hours away from each other. They learned from some of the neighborhood boys that James was known for befriending young boys, giving them presents, and inviting them to his house. Detective Coffey later recalled the information he received about James and stated in an interview that what he learned made the hairs on his neck stand on end. Quote, he was taking them on trips feeding them, buying them clothes, and giving them money, end quote. Another investigating officer recalled several of these boys telling him they also regularly talked with James and others by computer. After questioning them further, they learned that James had in fact bought these boys these computers. They immediately encouraged the team to make the computers part of their search warrants so they could be examined for further evidence. Neighbors in Hyattsville and Winchester said that James spent most of his time with boys between the ages of 7 to 15, and these boys were regularly at his house on the weekends. His newer Winchester neighbors even said he had several boys over every single weekend since he had moved there. One of these neighbors was named Robert McKay, and he lived two doors down from James in Winchester. Robert and his wife Mary stated that James regularly played softball and baseball in the backyard with the boys, lived alone, and took regular walks alone in the neighborhood. Robert said James was never sociable and never spoke, even when they made eye contact. Quote, the only company he ever had was boys. End quote. With all they were learning about James at this point, they decided to speak to Junior's family to ask them if he had ever had contact that they knew of with James. They said Junior had spent one afternoon with James the summer before when he had taken Junior to a yard sale. James had promised George to bring Junior back home by 5.30 p.m., but when 8 p.m. rolled around and Junior still wasn't home, he called the police. James ended up showing up with Junior 30 minutes later around 8.30 p.m., after this happened, George told Junior he was not to see or speak to James again. Shortly after this incident, George said he learned that James had been giving gifts to the neighborhood boys, like computers, computer games, movies, clothes, and shoes. Quote, I told Junior that it was strange that an older man would give young boys expensive gifts. I told him to stay away from that guy. End quote. On Thursday, three days after Junior disappeared, 
Police acted on the tips they had received and raided James' home in the 1300 block of Paper Mill Road in Winchester. They found a photo of James with three young boys posted on his refrigerator, but none of these boys were junior. After multiple young boys came forward, James was arrested on Thursday for sexually molesting two boys from Brentwood. Several other boys also came forward claiming they were sexually abused as well. There was also another name that came up, and this man was the one renting the house James had owned in Hyattsville. His name is Stephen Leake, and sometimes he's referred to as Bruce Leake, and he was also arrested and charged with molesting one of the same boys from Brentwood. It ended up coming out that a third man named Joseph Lynch, who also lived in the area, was involved as well. During the year after Junior's disappearance, police uncovered that all three of these men were involved in a child molestation and pornography ring. In total, police stated they believed these three men had molested six boys that they knew of from the neighborhood Junior lived in. There was an article released six days after Junior disappeared on May 30, 1993 by the Washington Post that stated authorities had brought in a civilian computer specialist to read and go through the files on his home computer. The Commonwealth attorney in Winchester at this time was named Paul Thompson, and he was quoted saying, Investigators are studying Kowalski's lifestyle, and we're discovering some disturbing things. We have a massive case developing. End quote. Law enforcement stated they were investigating the possibility that James was involved in a large pedophile ring that included children from the Washington area as well as children in Costa Rica. The assistant Commonwealth's attorney in 1993 was named Susan French, and she made a statement that police had found, quote, a description that appeared to have been written by James that described a trip he made to Costa Rica and named children he had had sexual relations with in Costa Rica, end quote. The accounts of these sex acts were written in first person and were described in great detail. Along with the floppy disks, investigators also seized a newly issued passport and one that had expired, both of which were issued to James. They found a road map he had drawn that mapped the route to Costa Rica from Winchester, new tires he had put on his Jeep, and a substantial amount of Costa Rican currency. Neighbors in Winchester ended up coming forward and told police James had told them he was going to retire and move to Costa Rica. A police spokeswoman was quoted telling the media, one piece of information that we don't mind sharing that we've obtained from the floppy disks is some detailed accounts of his visits to Costa Rica and the little boys he encountered there and what he did with them. We asked what he did with them. He responded, um, paid them for sex, numbers of them. She then stated, quote, Some indications were that on some days there might have been four or five young boys that he would have sex with in a day. End quote. James, Stephen, and Joseph would apparently befriend young boys, give them gifts, and invite them to the house Stephen was renting from James in Hyattsville. This house was only two miles from where Junior's family lived. They would then sexually abuse these boys, often videotaping the entire thing. James was charged with sexual battery, 
forcible sodomy, and indecent liberties with a juvenile in connection with two of the three boys they had seen in the photograph on his refrigerator. When James was questioned about Junior's disappearance, he told police that he didn't even know Junior was missing. But, during the search of his home, investigators found videotapes in the home that contained the recordings of the local news coverage of the search for Junior. The only proof that they could find that Junior had ever been in his house was the fact that he had logged onto a computer there to play a video game. Even with these details, police still did not have enough to charge any of the three men in Junior's disappearance. On Friday, the day after James was arrested and charged, a man from Winchester called the Winchester Commonwealth's attorney and claimed he had seen Junior riding a red bicycle with missing fenders at a park in town that Wednesday, only two days after Junior disappeared. This man said he recognized Junior because he had seen his photo being circulated on TV. He claimed the boy had been riding back and forth and seemed lost and disoriented. This lead ultimately ended up going nowhere. On June 17, 1993, almost a month after Junior disappeared, Prince George's County Police arrested a 52-year-old woman from Brentwood named Gloria. She was being charged with hindering a police investigation, which is a misdemeanor, after she lied to investigators about the last time she had seen Junior. Gloria was a longtime friend of James, and she had originally told police she had last seen Junior around 7.30 p.m. on May 24th, which was the day Junior disappeared. In another interview she did on June 4th, she admitted she had lied about this information, but police would not disclose what time she was now saying she had last seen him or why she had originally lied about it. The timing is critical in helping detectives retrace the hours leading up to Junior's disappearance. Quote, it's a very important piece of information, end quote. Gloria was never a suspect in Junior's disappearance, but she was interviewed for several hours after her arrest. Junior's parents went on to tell police that Gloria had been the one to introduce James to the Brentwood residents and their children. Apparently, James was regularly at Gloria's house and regularly took her sons and their friends, including Junior, on trips to local swimming pools and to his personal home in Winchester. The chief prosecutor in Winchester, Paul Thompson, stated that telephone records showed there were at least four phone calls made from his new house in Winchester to a listing in Brentwood the day after Junior disappeared. Paul would not confirm if these calls had been made to Gloria's home, but police later stated that they were. They also stated the charges brought against Gloria were to send a message to other witnesses who have lied to the police. Quote, Someone out there knows something, end quote. None of the three men were ever charged in Junior's disappearance or death because there wasn't enough evidence to connect them to his disappearance. They were, however, all charged with child abuse related to the boys that lived in that neighborhood. James, in particular, received over 200 years in prison on child sexual abuse and child pornography charges. The last update I found stated that James and Stephen are still in prison, but Joseph Lynch has been released. At the trial, 
Barbara testified that Junior had visited Joseph's home on the 3200 block of Varnum Street multiple times with his friends in 1993. After the discovery of this underground pedophile ring, the FBI began an investigation focused on internet child exploitation. This was one of the first big discoveries of pedophile rings being connected online, and the investigation helped teach the FBI about computer-savvy pedophiles. They learned these adults were using computers to transmit sexually explicit images to minors and lure minors into engaging in these activities. With all this information being uncovered, the FBI created an undercover operation to target predators online. In the beginning of this team being created, they were set up in a small telephone closet used for wiretaps and were sent online with undercover identities. Within hours of putting these messages out, the office was flooded with leads. A retired special agent that was involved in this at this time was named Lou Luciano, and he stated, quote, The very first time we threw the switch on this operation, it was like sharks coming for blood, end quote. The Hyattsville team knew they had uncovered something huge, but the laws were not ready to support the investigation. Detective Coffey was quoted saying, We were looking at the prosecutors, and they're telling us there is no law for this, end quote. The team supervisor helped them work directly with FBI headquarters and the Department of Justice to find a legal path to allow these investigations to happen. A few months into the investigation, they received a call from a Florida law enforcement officer who needed help with the investigation of a man living in New Hampshire that he had discovered was actively trading this kind of material online. Quote, That case really opened up the floodgates because he was trading tremendous amounts of child sexual abuse material that led us to hundreds more pedophiles. End quote. The large case they had uncovered exploded in September of 1995 when the FBI executed 116 warrants across the United States simultaneously. At this time, this was the highest number of search warrants ever conducted by the Bureau on any one case in any single day. Quote, We knew these guys communicated quickly, and we had to do it together or they would tip each other off. Destruction of evidence on a computer can be so quick. We wanted to make a big bang and let these folks know the Bureau is here, we are investigating this, and we are protecting children, end quote. The teams that followed through with these warrants were successful on each and every single one. The overwhelming results that they had uncovered and the success following the issued warrants led to the creation of the major national program known as Innocent Images. Quote, we knew we needed resources and the FBI could not do it alone. Other law enforcement agencies wanted to get involved. We had to train FBI agents across all of the field offices. We started offering training at the FBI Academy and at National Academy classes, end quote. What began in a small telephone closet ended up expanding into a nationwide and worldwide effort. Special Agent Matt Vilsack joined the Innocent Images National Initiative in 1999. 
He was quoted saying, When you take into account local task forces, local detectives, task force officers, FBI agents, Homeland Security agents, and Secret Service, you're talking about thousands of agents and officers domestically and internationally, end quote. Analysts, professional staff, and advocacy organizations like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children also provide support. Matt acknowledged in his interview that there were 86 child exploitation and human trafficking task forces operating across the Bureau. As of the year 2007, it has led to 44,000 cases and 8,000 convictions of child predators online. So now we go to the year 2020, and Matt is still working on these cases. With COVID and the lockdowns, we've seen an uptick in leads, end quote. Even though the amount of cases constantly pouring in can be overwhelming, the teams have had great success. In 2020, the FBI opened 3,351 child exploitation cases and made more than 1,600 arrests. These agents and task force officers also identified or located 1,410 child victims. Detective Coffey stated, When you consider that most offenders will hurt more than one child, every conviction is meaningful. If you can identify a pedophile and take them out of circulation, you can save dozens of children, end quote. Please remember this story is about the disappearance of Junior. But I wanted to share all this information because his disappearance revealed an entire underground industry online that law enforcement was not aware of yet. This was 1993, and the internet was just becoming a big thing. So the discovery of this so early helped save thousands of children and has continued to save children to this day. A newspaper article dedicated to Junior's disappearance was released on the one-year anniversary of his disappearance in 1994. Community members and Junior's family had hung yellow ribbons along the metal fence in front of the family home. At one point, George and Barbara had discussed moving altogether, but George was later quoted saying, Until an answer comes to what happened to Junior, this is the only home he knows and the one he will come back to. I'm just hoping he is well, being taken care of, and he will return home soon. I still feel someone knows something and that information will lead to Junior, end quote. Police investigators stated they were still looking for the one clue that might help find him. Quote, hopefully someone will call us with a piece of the puzzle that will lead us to Junior, end quote. George and Barbara also stated that after Junior disappeared, they stayed inside for weeks hoping the phone would ring and they would hear Junior on the other end. Barbara left her job so that she could always take Gary and Virginia to school and watch them when they came home. The new house rules were that the Burdinsky children were only allowed to ride their bikes as far as two driveways away before they had to turn around and come back. George was quoted saying, there's no reason for them to go further than that, end quote. In 2002, detectives reached out to George and Barbara because they had developed a new theory in Junior's case. They stated they thought he had been killed shortly after his abduction. 
Detective Butler revealed that some new findings had led to the identity of a new suspect and he was re-interviewing people they had previously spoken to. He could not reveal the identity of the suspect, but it was known it did not involve any of the original three men that were arrested. Barbara was quoted saying, You just feel like you're lost, like you're in limbo. There are times you think, what are they doing to him? Are they torturing him? Are they hurting him? End quote. Detective Butler also stated in a 2002 interview that he has been deeply affected by Junior's case. Quote, In this business, there are certain cases that sticks in your crawl. For me, this has been one of those cases. Not a day goes by when I don't think about it. Hopefully, we will finally be able to bring some closure to this case for us and the boy's family. End quote. In the years that followed, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children produced age progression images of Junior that would show the distinctive scar on the right side of his face. In 2004, there were reported sightings of George Jr. in Boston and Northborough, Massachusetts. Witnesses recognized him by the scar on his face and said he appeared to be homeless. It's possible he may have been with a group of people who were selling magazine or coupon books door-to-door at the time. Two detectives from Brentwood traveled to Massachusetts to investigate these sightings, but they were unable to locate this individual or determine if he was actually George Jr. or not. To this day, this man has never been identified. I want to end this case with some statements made by Junior's younger sister, Virginia, that were given in a 2018 interview. Quote, that was my big brother. He was my world. He was just awesome in my eyes. He still is awesome in my eyes. Days went on and I just saw my parents crying and I asked my mom, when is he coming home? When are they going to find him? And she said, I don't know. We're looking. Every year is a constant reminder that I don't have him. Someone took him from me. That's a huge piece of my heart that's gone. I just so badly want him back. End quote. Junior's father, George, passed away on August 13th, 2021. And as far as I can tell, his mom and siblings are still alive. Virginia still lives in the neighborhood Junior disappeared from, just a few blocks from their parents' home, where yellow ribbons as signs of hope still hang on the chain-link fence. George Burdinsky Jr. was last seen by his mother leaving the family home around 3.30 p.m. on May 24, 1993, in Brentwood, Maryland, when he was 10 years old. He is a Caucasian male with dark blonde hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 4 foot tall and weighed around 60 pounds. He was last seen wearing a blue shirt with green shorts. Junior was riding his red and white 1950 Series Schwinn bicycle with a large seat, wide handlebars with a spare rim tied around them, and a missing rear fender. The spare rim was later recovered in the searches, but his bike has never been found. George has a scar on the right side of his face above his mouth. His case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of George Burdinsky Jr., please contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST or 
1-800-843-5678. The second case I want to share with you today is about Toya Katrina Hill. Toya Hill was born on August 24, 1973, to her mother, Annette Stanley. She grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, in the Lafayette Homes Housing Project in the 200 block of South Spring Street, and also had two brothers and one sister. Toya was described as a quiet and well-behaved kid. She always won trophies at school for her perfect attendance and regular involvement in school activities. At the time she disappeared, she was only eight years old and a third grader at City Springs Elementary School. Her mom, Annette, was engaged at this time, and Toya was supposed to be the flower girl in the wedding, which was coming up in just a few days. On March 24, 1982, which was a Wednesday, Toya had finished her school day and came home with her siblings. Annette gave the kids a snack and then permission to go outside and play with their friends in the courtyard of the apartment. The kids played outside for a few hours until Annette had to leave around 6.15 p.m. There are some sources that state she had to go to work, but all sources also confirm that Annette arrived back home sometime between 7.15 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., which would have meant she was only gone for around an hour. I can't confirm 100% where she went during this hour, whether it was to work or the store or whatever it may have been, but we do know Annette was not gone very long. After Annette left the apartment, Toya told her siblings that she was going to walk to the store that was two blocks away at the corner of Caroline Street to buy some candy. Toya was not allowed to walk anywhere by herself because she was only eight years old but she told her siblings she was going anyway and she would be back before Annette came home. It was actually reported that Toya had never done anything like this and she normally always listened to Annette's house rules. According to reports, Toya was last seen near the store and she had stopped to talk to two men. Both of their names have never been released to the public, but we do know one of the men was actually Annette's ex-boyfriend. This is the last time anyone ever saw Toya and she never arrived home from the store. When Annette came back home around 7.15 p.m. and couldn't find Toya, she immediately reported her missing. After calling the police, it was reported that Annette and around 150 people began canvassing and searching the neighborhood looking for her. It never stated if police were involved in these searches or if these searches were simply neighborhood residents. One of the reasons I really wanted to share Toya's case after sharing Junior's case is because I wanted to show the discrepancies in how these cases were handled by police once they were reported. I know the police questioned people in this case, but there was not a single record of a police search being conducted for Toya. Nothing was found in the search Annette had helped conduct, but authorities did question the ex-boyfriend and the other man that was last seen speaking to Toya. They both insisted they didn't know where Toya was and had nothing to do with her disappearance, and they were both eventually cleared as suspects altogether. 
Annette was initially convinced that her ex-boyfriend had abducted Toya to either convince her to get back together with him or to make her postpone her wedding that was scheduled for that upcoming Saturday, only three days away. As time went on and nothing regarding Toya was ever found, Annette repeatedly reached out to her ex for any information about what happened to her daughter. Quote, I kept calling back to his house, leaving messages on his phone. I said, please give her back to me. He returned the call a day later and said he didn't have her, end quote. This man never wavered in his story and told Annette that he did not have her and had no idea what had happened or who had taken her. Annette decided to go forward with her wedding in hopes that this would convince her ex-boyfriend to give Toya back. When this didn't happen and he continued to maintain that he was innocent, Annette divorced her new husband and became involved with this ex. She later stated she only did this because at the time, she was still convinced he had been the one that took Toya. She ended up marrying this ex-boyfriend, and when she still couldn't find out any new information about Toya, she ended up divorcing him several months later. Quote, that was the reason for the marriage. I thought maybe he would give her back to me. At the time, I would have done anything as a mother to get answers, end quote. Now, before anyone judges Annette for the decision she made here, please remember that if you have never been through the pain of losing a child or the suffering of having your child go missing, you have no right to judge how the parents cope or fight to bring their children home. Annette genuinely believed in her heart that this ex-boyfriend had taken her daughter. So in my opinion, it's not irrational to think getting close to this person might possibly help find your child, especially if they were the last person seen with them. This ex-boyfriend reportedly passed away, but I don't have a day of death, so I'm not sure how long it was after Toya's disappearance. The sad thing is, if he did know anything about what happened to Toya, he took it to his grave with him. And that's it. That's all the details ever reported in Toya's case since 1982. Like I said, I don't think authorities really looked for this girl. She was a minority and lived in the projects of Baltimore, and the sad reality is, these details are probably why the police weren't too concerned about it. Toya's disappearance remains unsolved to this day, but foul play is suspected. As far as I know, Annette and Toya's siblings are still alive, and her mom still lives in the same area her daughter disappeared from. She still holds out hope that Toya will be found, stating, quote, I will always believe she is alive, but some part of me says, she's that old. How come she hasn't tried to find you? Really, I'm still at the same place I was at before. That's the problem. You don't have any answers. I took everything, all the things she had, little drawings she did. I keep them in a box in my closet. End quote. Toya Hill was last seen on March 24, 1982, speaking to two men while she was walking to the store in Baltimore, Maryland when she was eight years old. She is an African-American female with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was four foot tall and weighed around 80 pounds. Toya was last seen wearing a blue jacket, 
a blue and orange striped top, and blue jeans. She wears eyeglasses, but she was not wearing them at the time she disappeared. She also had a chipped front tooth and a deep dimple in her left cheek. Her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Toya Hill, please contact the Baltimore Police Department at 410-396-2334. That's all I have for episode 20, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please contact me via email, podcast 7 at gmail.com. Don't forget to click to rate and review the show, as well as head to Instagram and follow me at Pod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm